War. Clausewitz wrote that war is simply a continuation of political intercourse with the addition of other means. But what are those other means and how do we apply them for victory over our opponent? That is the subject of the next few episodes of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to the 50th episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel and, at one time anyway, instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. This series of podcasts introduces enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace, and particularly now when the world is facing war again. Since the last episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare, Russia has launched major offensive operations in Ukraine. I believe this not only to be unjust, but also ill-considered. Like Belgium, there is ample military history of battles in that region and with those peoples. Based on that history, none of the difficulties the Russian armed forces have experienced should have been a surprise. Yet, here we are. Slava Ukraina! Glory to Ukraine. But this podcast is not specifically about Ukraine. It's about the various elements of national power and how they might be applied and misapplied as elements of strategy in war, whether that is called conventional, irregular, hybrid, unrestricted, or multidimensional. I don't pretend to have any great expertise on Ukraine or Russia, and I don't intend to provide advice to our government about what it should do. I intend to lay out the different elements of national power, the tools available, and what needs to be considered when applying those tools to achieve the political objectives of war. These ideas may be applicable to the current situation in Ukraine and maybe other places in Eastern and Central Europe, but they are not specific to those situations. As is usual for me, I will frequently refer to Clausewitz. This isn't just my own preference in explaining war. Our strategic opponents, most notably Russia, also study Clausewitz, and perhaps more seriously than America does in its war colleges. China studies Clausewitz, too, and despite popular misconception, it only recently moved to a greater appreciation of Sun Tzu. So, if, as Sun Tzu advised, we must know our enemies and ourselves, then we should understand Clausewitz's concepts of war, adapting those concepts for current situations. When Clausewitz wrote that war is a continuation of political intercourse with the addition of other means, he went on to make it clear that war in itself does not suspend political intercourse or change it into something entirely different. War just adds military violence to the mix of tools being used to achieve national interests. Sun Tzu would add that if a ruler is doing things well, the addition of that violence may never be necessary. So, what are those other elements of political intercourse? And how are they used to achieve those national interests, and particularly when our opponent resists us? U.S. military doctrine states that there are four fundamental elements of national power. In addition to military power, there is diplomatic power, informational power, and economic power. Each of these elements includes different tools within those elements. For example, information warfare could include cyber operations, propaganda, disinformation, public awareness campaigns, and so on. In this episode, I will describe how the economic element of national power can be used in support of strategic objectives in war and operations short of war. 
Clausewitz did not specifically describe using the other means of political intercourse, but the basic ideas of war also apply to these other means as they are all used in concert with the military means and with one another to achieve the political objective of the war. To achieve that objective, as Uncle Carl wrote, which is to coerce our enemy to comply with our demands, we must put him in a situation that is even more unpleasant than the sacrifice we call on him to make. In other words, to create conditions that are more painful for the enemy to continue on his present course than what we are asking him to do or give up. To achieve that result in the economic domain, we have to clearly understand what we want to achieve, what we want our opponent to do or stop doing, and the value our opponent places on doing or not doing the action we want to change, the level of economic pain he considers intolerable, and the tools we have available to convince him to change. In peacetime engagement, these objectives will be fairly limited. Examples include, but are not limited to, an attempt to achieve a trade advantage over another party or to stop some activity we determine to be a commercial or political interest of ours. Tools include tariffs, negotiating trade deals, and integrated commercial engagement with our economic partners, among others. The effectiveness of this will depend on the value our opponent places on that activity and our own cost in implementing those measures. The more serious the enemy's action, the greater value he will place on achieving those ends. The greater our own efforts will then have to be, and the greater the costs intended and unintended to our opponent and to ourselves. For example, the apartheid government of South Africa continued for some time under severe international economic sanctions. Those sanctions did not apply the level of pain necessary for the government of South Africa to change. Similarly, the governments of Iran and North Korea drive on. Clearly, the penalties imposed have not been enough, and the United States and its partners have been unable or unwilling to raise the level of economic pain to the point where those adversaries will change their behavior. One major consideration in the likely effectiveness of these economic actions is whether the opponent can find alternatives to the economic measures we are applying. For example, if you target access to certain raw materials, success requires ensuring that the opponent does not find other sources for those raw materials. These sources could include countries that are not participating in the coercive economic measures or by new investment in the target country's own resource development. One way to limit the ability of the opponent to import necessary materials and products is to attack the country's foreign financial stability. Measures could be taken to cancel international credit or devalue the currency on the open market. One way of doing that would be to flood the market with whatever cash reserves are being held in that country's currency. Another way, as we have seen recently with regard to Russia, is to block their ability to engage in electronic financial transactions. With a rapidly devalued currency, the target country will find it more and more expensive to import necessary products and materials, even if they find markets willing to sell them those products and materials. One workaround for the opponent is the export of high-dollar goods that will bring in the hard currency that may allow the opposing government to remain viable. Therefore, shutting off access to hard currency through shutting down exports becomes essential. This is a bit harder than either limiting imports or devaluing currency. For example, despite sanctions in place against both North Korea and Iran, and the fact that they do not share a common border, 
they still manage to trade with one another. One important way to address these challenges is to target sanctions to critical components of the opponent's economy. In military operations, you can't attack or defend everything. The same is true for economic operations. We must analyze the opponent's economy to identify his center of economic gravity or the key enablers necessary to maintain that center of gravity. Then, we choose actions that will focus on those key areas. If a country gets its principal access to foreign currency through export of certain technologies, then focus efforts on shutting down demand for those technologies from that country. The same is true for certain raw materials. Target those sectors that will cause the most pain to your opponent, and particularly to the leadership of the opposing country. As I've said before, war is a human endeavor. Focus on the human beings that lead that country. Clausewitz wrote that war is really very simple. But even the simplest thing is hard. And this is just as true in the economic domain as in the military domain. For example, you or your international partners may have gotten to become dependent on certain exports from the opponent. Certainly this has been the case with oil exports from Iran and more pertinently to the current crisis natural gas exports from Russia to Europe. Friendly governments, including our own, may resist economic actions that harm their own economies or may be unpopular with their people. Half measures, however, rarely achieve victory. With that, let's move to the current situation in Ukraine as an example, while understanding that this has much broader applicability. Actions taken to date have made the ruble almost worthless, and Russian access to international financial transactions has been made nearly impossible. At the same time, key Russian leaders and influencers have been under specific sanctions, making life very difficult for them. Unfortunately, indicators are that Russia and its kleptocratic leaders can continue for some time under these current economic restrictions. Existing sanctions have done little. Sanctions were placed on Russian political and economic leaders after the invasion of Crimea and eastern Ukraine in 2014. Not only did those sanctions not cause Russia to change its course of action, Russia's political military activity in Africa and the Middle East continues to expand, facilitated by kleptocrats and mercenary organizations that are under specific sanction. These current measures, therefore, are unlikely to have the immediate effect that Ukraine needs to maintain its political independence. One reason that Russia's elite have been little affected by the existing sanctions is because they have alternatives to maintain their financial liquidity. Furthermore, not all countries are participating in these economic actions against Russia. Most notably, three of the top ten of Russia's trading partners are not participating in these sanctions. Russia's top trading partner is China, accounting for 18% of Russia's imports and 15% of its exports. Other non-participating countries among Russia's recent top 10 trading partners include Belarus, which is for all practical purposes a co-belligerent in the war, and Kazakhstan. Together, these three countries make up a quarter of Russia's imports and exports. A second and more serious obstacle is that, as a matter of convenience to our NATO allies, we are not targeting Russia's major source of foreign currency, energy exports. 42% of Russia's export revenue comes from oil and gas, more than four times as much revenue as from the next category of exports. 
nor are we applying economic restrictions on the financial tools that facilitate those exports and the transfer of wealth from the West to Russia. Curiously, the United States is not doing other things that would devalue the revenue Russia receives from those exports. This would include restarting our own oil production that was halted in January 2021. If these oil production measures were reinstituted, it would lower the global spot price of oil, then thereby Russia's access to hard currencies. We could also increase our export of liquid natural gas, perhaps even at a below market price for our allies who are dependent on Russian gas exports. There is an argument that these additional measures would unjustly harm the Russian population. This is not a serious consideration. Actions targeted on Russian exports and currency devaluation principally affect Russian political and economic leaders, not the average Russian citizen. We would only be hitting major cash-producing exports. Most items Russia imports for domestic needs they also export, so the needs of the population could be offset by redistribution of goods within the Russian economy. You can bet that Russia takes notes of those limitations to our resolve. In the section of On War that describes creating conditions necessary for victory, Clausewitz wrote, The more modest your own political aim, the less importance you attach to it. Putin can interpret this as meaning that, since the West is unwilling to sacrifice its access to Russian energy products, then the West values their comfort more than they value Ukraine's right to exist as an independent nation. If we are serious about defending Ukraine short of kinetic military operations, then we should be willing to hit the Russian economy where it hurts most. That is their energy exports. We can do that if we have the will to do it. If, on the other hand, we are not willing to suffer some discomfort to stop the bloodshed in Ukraine, then shame on us. Furthermore, do not believe for a minute that Putin will limit his goal of re-establishing the Russian Empire by taking Ukraine. That said, with regard to the current crisis and looking to future crises, if we do take the economic measures necessary to create that level of pain, there must be no doubt that such actions go beyond peacetime engagement. They are genuine acts of violence that can cause suffering and death in the target country. They could even create an existential crisis for the people of that country or its leadership. This could drive the opposing government to escalate their reaction beyond economic, informational, or diplomatic domains. If the economic threat is perceived to be just as intolerable as what we are asking our opponent to do or stop doing, then an economic war could quickly and unexpectedly become a shooting war. The question, then, is what value do we place on Ukraine's independence and the subsequent threat to other former Soviet states? In the next episode, I'll address using the diplomatic element of national power in the ancient art of modern warfare.